Today on Never Was a Gamer, it's time I stopped sleeping on The Legend of Zelda. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time discovering everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the guy who issues our call to adventure, Dimitri. Hi, thanks for listening. If you haven't listened before, you can check out episode zero for a whole bunch more context, but the short version is, I missed a lot of great games growing up, and now Dimitri and I are revisiting them to fill in the gaps and talk about how they feel to us today. Yeah, and today we're starting a game and a series that it's kind of stunning that Michelle has actually been able to avoid for this long. (laughs) I think the premise of this podcast is that (laughs) I'm good at avoiding things in weird ways. (laughs) So it makes sense, though, in the past because we've done Super Metroid and really there hasn't been a new Metroid game released since you've started playing games again. Right. Or at least certainly that people liked, right? Yeah. And then we did Metal Gear Solid. And when you came on, we were already in so deep. So you can't really just pick that up at five. Yeah. They were gearing up for five when I got involved. So. But to not bear the lead, we're doing Link's Awakening. (laughs) Your first. I like how you just jump right to the Link's Awakening. Like everyone listening to this podcast knows what it is. Well, I assume (laughs) it's in the title of the. (laughs) Right. I guess. (laughs) But this is kind of for all intents and purposes, your it's going to be your first real playthrough of a Zelda game. And I mean, those never stop being made and they never really stop being good. And just you've never gone to one. It, it's it's still kind of shocking to me that you've been able to avoid it for so long. No, especially uh, I mean, recent couple of years ago, Breath of the Wild is lots of people are calling that still like their favorite game or one of their favorite games. I was I was very much here for Breath of the Wild. I just didn't pick it up ever. So uh, I guess before we get into Link's Awakening, we should start as we always do, just to see um, how much you were able to avoid and maybe how much (laughs) you've just kind of taken in via some kind of cultural osmosis. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not all cultural osmosis this time, right? Oh, that's right. So I guess you do have a bit of a history with the series, right? You played Link to the Past when you were a kid. Yeah, I would have been, what, like seven? Um, I I mean, it's a slight overstatement to say I played Link to the Past. I played some of it, got to a specific point, I think like basically got into the dark world and then was like, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. This is hard and kind of bounced off of it. Okay, so you you did still make it a good ways in, though. See, that's the thing. Today, I, I remember getting to the dark world and that the stuff that you do leading up to it, but I have no sense of how far that is into the game. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if that's two hours in or if that's, like, late game. I have no framework for that. Like, it's less than half, but, I mean, you've still, you still had to kind of do it to get there. So is there anything from that playthrough then, even though it was so long ago, that, that you remember? Yeah, I mean, I remember a certain feel and look of Link. I remember like scooting around with your little run and like how there was sort of this specific collision with the sword on enemies where sometimes you'd like be bounced back a little. Um, I remember the three pendants. I remember Hyrule Castle. I remember sort of the layout of the map. I remember the foggy forest with the sword and the the big mountain thing on the top of the map that you climb to get to the dark world. And 
I remember Zora and the flippers and okay, so you remember. Yeah, it's like I'm quite a bit, which is it's honestly more than I usually remember from games from that mm. era that I haven't continued to play. Like, I still remember Donkey Kong Country really well, but like I've played it in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of interesting to me that I have actually pretty concrete memories of Link to the Past for something that I bounced off of and have not touched. Is there is there a reason you haven't gone back to this series? Not like consciously. I mean, I don't. Like, do you remember enjoying it, not enjoying it? I remember enjoying it until I was like, I don't know what to do. And I I, honestly, I can't tell how much of what I think about that experience is apocryphal versus Mm. how much Mm -hmm. is like a legitimate memory. I don't, I've never really, it's almost like there's a category of games sometimes that when people are talking about them, I just assume that they're not for me and I don't even really bother to think about like, oh, am I going to play that? Do I want to play that? And Hmm. for some reason, I feel like this fell into that category where I just, it wasn't, I don't know. I never even, it's not even like I rejected it. I just didn't think about it for some Hmm. reason. Yeah. And you've had no kind of interest in playing any of the newer ones as they were released? I mean, I think I, I sort of thought about picking up Breath of the Wild, um, but not much. Honestly, the the most that I felt a draw is when the remake of Link's Awakening got announced. So I mean, we we're going to talk about this, but mm-hmm. we we had already been planning to do Link's Awakening for this podcast. We can talk about why we mm-hmm. chose this one, but this is honestly the first time I've really been like, oh, maybe I might really like this. So I guess before getting to Link's Awakening specifically, maybe why we chose it, why it appealed to you when you saw maybe some of the the, the trailer. Um, what is that you know about this series in general, apart from the things you remember from your Link to the Past playthroughs? <laughs> is there anything you know kind of about the series, what it's about, either kind of narratively, thematically, in terms of gameplay? Thematically, definitely not. Um, I know you're always Link. Link is always the guy. I think there's all I mean, there's always Zelda. She's always a princess, but I think her role in the world can vary. I don't know if Ganon is the big bad in all of them. Or I know there's a Ganondorf, but I don't know what that is. Right. This, this, so this is something that came up when Michelle it was like a few months ago realized that she knows there's a Ganon and a Ganondorf, but doesn't know what the differences are, how they're related. No, I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, so a Ganon and or Ganondorf <laughs> is present <laughs> often. I don't know if it's always Hyrule, but I, I feel like Hyrule is a consistent... You know, a lot of what I know about it actually is sort of the the like iconography of it right like your triforce your sword i think might have been called sword of power i don't know the master sword the master sword is exactly what it's (laughs) called thank you um your shield your boomerang um pointy ears green tunic Mm -hmm. with a little hat so it's it's again a case of everything you know about zelda you learn from smash bros (laughs) (laughs) i mean i do so i do definitely remember seeing my brothers play ocarina of time that was in our house for sure which we'll probably get to sooner than later especially if you enjoy this yeah 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 um and i know that that's one that is a really frequent um appearer on like top games of all time lists i guess later zeldas were around but they like they weren't i didn't touch them Hmm. yeah so do you have any expectations about what the kind of the moment-to-moment gameplay is do you remember that from your playthrough or do you just kind of remember running your weird like running animation and hitting things with the sword. 
No, I think I remember a fair bit of what the what the moment to moment playthrough is like. I remember this sort of like top down um, running around, swiping your your sword, having a couple other weapons at your disposal, um, going into dungeons, but having a relatively stable overworld map that you sort of navigate through. I remember, I remember there being a, one of my big questions is how much plot or character there is in these games, because I definitely from Link to the Past, my memory of it, and I, I wouldn't want to bet money on how accurate this is, but what I remember is that there's sort of just enough plot to hang the action gameplay on and not really more than that. Like I sort of remember it being like, there's a threat to our world, go get the three pendants and then we'll talk more. And then we talk a little more and then you go do the next thing. Like, mm-hmm. And do you want a more of a narrative hook then? I don't, I don't know if I need it. I mean, it, I, I imagine these as games that live or die by how fun they are to play and how like, uh, interesting and good looking the the different spaces you go to are, how fun and creative the dungeons are. I know there's like always a little bit of puzzle element in the dungeons, not like primarily that, but often there's a bit of like wayfinding. So I I don't need it. Uh, I'm open to it. I mean, one of the one of the few things I know about Link's Awakening is a tonal thing that is story related, not gameplay related. Okay, so what so, do you Okay, so maybe now is a good time to get into Link's Awakening. So what is it that you do know about it? Oh, so literally all I know about this game specifically as opposed to the Zelda franchise generally is that this one has kind of a sad melancholy vibe. So that is essentially the basis on which I picked <laughs> this Zelda. <laughs> and that's just something you've heard? Yeah, and I I can't even really remember where I've absorbed that from, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like the sad one. Do you have any sense of what that might refer to? What that means? I, I, my best guess um, is that it's something to do with you find out that your actions as Link are causing big problems in this world, or something like that. Like that, you, some sort of thing where you find out you, you, sort of are the bad guy and have to like do something about that. I'm not sure. Hmm. Like, I think the answer is no, <laughs> probably. <laughs> And, and is that really all you like that alone has made you excited to play this? Truly. I, okay. I'm such a sucker for like, here's the tone of this game, especially like melancholy is one of those words that every time I'm like, ooh, like you want to try. Tell that. me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Is there I, anything else about this game? Any imagery that that um, you associate with it? Truly? No, no, okay. no, literally. I mean, <laughs> we, you know, there's more stuff I could tell you about. The Zelda franchise, you've got your breakable clay pots with rupees in them. You got uh, chickens, oh. Oh, cuckoos. Yeah. yeah, the the cuckoos. Okay, so earlier, <laughs> we I was just asking Michelle what she knows about it. And she mentioned these pots. Yeah. The, the, the breakable pots. Yeah. And she mentioned that sometimes you break them and you get a rupee. Often. And sometimes you break them. And or there's a heart, a, a piece of a heart. Sometimes. And sometimes you break them and there's a chicken inside. There is at least one time in Link to the Past where you break a pot and there's a chicken inside. And you're 100% where sure you lift this. you lift the pot off the floor and there's a chicken on the floor. Yes, I'm 100% sure. I, you're looking at me like I'm so stupid. I cannot <laughs> wait for people to email corrections to you. I'm going to forward <laughs> them all to your personal account. This is definitely something that I don't remember. I'm going to find this on YouTube or open this <laughs> stupid game for the first time in 20 years <laughs> and show you. Maybe this one just 
just, see if there's a the chicken in a pot. opening town, whatever the town is with the chickens. I don't even know <laughs> if that's the first place that you start. But I have such a clear visual memory of this. You could not be more wrong about okay. this specific thing. I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> that there's a chicken in the jar. No, the not, not the jar. Not the jar. Okay, not the clear jars, but in the in the clay pots of the rubies. That are on, yeah. yeah. Okay. At least one time that happens. You okay. pick it up and then you're like, the chicken goes, and like panics and runs around. Okay. It does. Okay. So you, Email so, him, listeners. Tell him. <laughs> so you know about all this like Send those YouTube links. But apart from that, um, yeah, you, you're not really sure what you're getting no. into with this one. No, not really at all. Okay. That's pretty, that's pretty fun. <laughs> uh, that should be that should be fun. Um, yeah, what I can tell you about this, I mean, we'll we'll get into it a little bit more, and I'll show you a little bit of art. But for this one, I do kind of want to keep it pretty mysterious for you. I don't want to show you. I, I kind of want to show you less of this game than I have even of Metroid or Metal Gear. Okay. Just so you can discover things on your own. Okay. So we're going to do a little bit of that, but not too much. But this is was, that because I know less about these. Partially because you partially because you know less, and also because I yeah, it's it's fun for you to be surprised by things. Okay. Um, but this was this was my first Zelda game. I didn't play Link to the Past until quite a bit after. Is it, does it come chronologically before Link to the Past? In terms of like when it comes out? No, it it's so this is the this is the game in between Link to the Past and Ocarina of Time. Okay, gotcha. It comes out about a year, a year and a half after uh, Link to the Past. It comes out in nineteen ninety three. Okay. And it also takes place like story wise right after. It's it's kind of a direct oh. sequel. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's one of the few direct sequels. Am I going to be okay not knowing yeah. what happened? Okay. So I can give you. So the premise of it is that after you've kind of defeated Ganon in Link to the Past, mm -hmm. so there's a spoiler: you defeat Ganon. Yeah, in Link no, to the I past. figured as much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Link wants to go. He he realizes there could be a kind of continuing darkness, and so to prepare himself for anything that might come. He decides he needs to go training. Okay. So he goes around the world and trains to get stronger and then hops a ship to sail back to Hyrule. And then on the way back to Hyrule, the ship gets caught in a storm. He gets shipwrecked and ends up on this island. Oh, okay, cool. And so that's the that's where it begins. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's kind of a it's kind of a cool narrative hook. It ties into the other game, but again, I hadn't played that one at the time. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and I was pretty young, and this was my first Zelda game. Zelda's always did seem kind of intimidating to me. Um, it's strange you had Link to the Past. Did your brothers, they couldn't have played it. They would have been so young. So I have, again, who knows if this is made up or if it actually happened. I remember at one point them being ahead of me. Like, I think at some point they got further into the dark world than I did, because hmm. I remember one of them giving me a tip. Hmm about something in the dark world. That but must have been later. I I played these on such weird timelines. Like, I I don't know that I played it in 1992. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, right. it could have been, they could have been eight at that right. point. Like, we played the Super Nintendo for so long. Right. Yeah, because the one thing I remember from, from Link's Awakening playing it is, especially for a Game Boy game, it just feeling kind of overwhelmingly big. Mm. I wasn't used to games, even even on, on a Super Nintendo or on the NES or on the Sega Master System that I had, kind of being that open and having that much freedom. I hadn't played the original Zelda when it came out because okay. I was like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, again, even that was intimidating. I mean, the original Zelda still I find intimidating. Okay. So why did you find them intimidating, especially back then? I mean, most of the stuff that I played, especially then, 
I played a lot of platformers, so I, I'm used to right. knowing exactly where I'm supposed to go. Right, right, right. There's, there's a clear direction. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and you kind of get through it. And this just kind of being dumped in this world, mm-hmm. it just felt massive and I felt lost. And it was really fun. But about, I do remember about three quarters of the way through, I just hit a block. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I did eventually beat it, but only because like months and months later, a tip for where I was stuck showed up in Nintendo Power so oh, I could okay. finally get through. But it was at the point where I didn't know anybody else who was playing it. And so I was just, and there was no internet. And I didn't have the player's guide and I didn't go and find the player's guide. So I was just stuck. Right. And I remember like picking it up intermittently, seeing like goofing around, seeing if I could find a way out. I think I did that too. Putting it back, picking it up. Yeah. Maybe a week later. What about now? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, no, just stuck. Yeah. Um, Until like Counselor's Corner in Nintendo Power saved me. Cool. So I will so, you after I play this, will you tell me where it was that you got stuck? I I remember I don't remember exactly okay. where I remember what dungeon it was. I don't okay. remember exactly what it was about it. Okay, cool. But it's near yeah, it's near the end. I think it's the second last one or third last one. Okay. But yeah, so one of the reasons I'm excited for you to play this is because it was my first one. It kind of got me hooked on the series. But it's also, especially going and playing them and playing Link to the Past after. This is the one I think that you could say cemented what becomes the Zelda formula that lasted up until Breath of the Wild. Breath mm-hmm. of the Wild kind of breaks from that formula. Right. And, and this is the one that really establishes it. Um, Link to the Past does a bit, but this one establishes both kind of the form and the personality. Hmm. Whereas Link to the Past, you kind of remember correctly, it doesn't have as much personality. The story is very, very bare bones and there's not, it's not as interesting in terms of character. Whereas this one, this one has kind of a lot of character. The tone is really interesting. Cool. So I think you'll I think you'll like it. I think it's a good place to start. Cool. And it, it gives you a better sense of what the series became. That is also appealing to me. That's great. So before we get into the game specifically, maybe we can talk a bit about one of the things that I really like about the Zelda series that a lot of people really like about the Zelda series and something that I think you really like, which is why it's continually shocking that you haven't picked one of these <laughs> up ever. And that's really the sense of adventure that these games right, create. Right. Right. These games are really known for being quintessential adventure games. But that term's pretty opaque. I right. think it means a lot of different things to different people. So maybe we can spend a few minutes really unpacking what an adventure game means to you. What is it for you for a game to create a sense of adventure? Yeah. So I've been putting some thought into what. Like, to me, adventure is such a specific word. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as having a mission or having a quest. Like, and so I've been trying to uh, mostly think about what the differences are between those, because I have this really, really specific idea of what adventure is. So I think there's a couple things you obviously need, like a quest where odds are against you. You probably do some traveling or exploring. You go on a journey. You discover some new things. You grow. But there's two main things that I have sort of landed on as being, for me, things that differentiate, like, we're on an adventure versus other kinds of, like, structures or feelings in games. One of them is people. So in adventure, I think you you may end up with, like, a team, like, friends who join you in your adventure. Okay. Or allies who support you or people who throw up obstacles or villains. Um, But I think there's, I think an adventure needs people in it that are are impacting the journey that the hero is on. So you can't have a solo adventure? I don't know. I I mean, I wouldn't want to categorically say no, but as I thought about 
times when I have felt like I'm on an adventure, part of it is this meeting people who help you, Hmm. people who want to hurt you, people who change your course, people who give you information, people who ask for things. I think that is a part of it for me. Okay. Do you you know why? Like, what is it about having interactions with other characters that makes it kind of more adventuresome? I think it's cousin to that feeling of journey or discovering new places and things. Mm -hmm. It's also encountering people that you would never otherwise have met who are in those places or on that journey who have their own agenda that is not necessarily like immediately legible to you always. I think it's part of that like foreignness or encountering things that in your safe, non-adventurous life you never would have encountered. Okay. And for you, that that has to be people or characters. Uh, I think characters makes more sense than people. I'm sure I could think of, uh, I'm sure I could think of an adventure where there, where there isn't that. But I think for me, it's a really important. Like point. when we, when we played the witness, did you feel like we were on an adventure? No, no, okay. no, no. Uh, I felt like we were just in a place doing puzzles, okay. <laughs> which was fun. Yeah. They, they were yeah. good puzzles, but like, no, I wouldn't use that word. Okay. And what's, so what's the second thing for you? The second one is consent or choice. So I've been thinking a lot about specifically what the difference is between games that I would call an adventure and ones that also have this similar structure of like, you have a big goal, you have a quest, you have things you're working towards, you go on a journey, you meet people that meet all the other criteria, but that I wouldn't call an adventure. And so I think for me, a key thing is that the incitement or like the reason why the person is going on the adventure can't be like because they suffered a personal trauma that left them no choice. Mm. So for me, like a game that started with um, my whole family and my whole village was massacred and I have to go out Mm -hmm. to like for survival and like to find out what happened, Mm -hmm. that person's not on an adventure to me. You know, even if the rest of their story is has those tent poles. Right. For me, an adventure involves something that the protagonist could choose to look away from if they wanted to, but they don't. Hmm. They choose to go out into this world and put themselves in harm's way and be vulnerable and try and grow and do things um, and not just look away and hope someone else will deal with the thing. Okay. So So, like for one example, if it helps, so going back to Mass Effect, which is a game that I played. Mm-hmm. I think Mass Effect 1 is an adventure and okay. I think Mass Effect 3 is not. Okay. Because in 1 you're like this up and coming marine, you discover this thing, you decide to continue to pursue it and try to figure out what's going on and you learn more and more and you visit all these things and meet all these people and you are you are propelling yourself through that journey or like the character is. Whereas in Mass Effect 3, it's purely like the apocalyptic invading aliens are here. We don't have the choice of not dealing with them. Like we, the only way forward through this like personal and collective trauma is to like go deal with it. So to me, that's not an adventure, even though it has moments that otherwise would resemble. Okay. That that makes, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Any other, any other games that stand out for you as providing a, a sense of adventure generally? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's let's kind of hear your games, then we can discuss them maybe. So I want to two quickly, and then one that is for me the pinnacle of okay. adventure. So Outer Wilds, that 
we both played this year and I'm still going through. Yeah, you're still quite early in it. I'm yeah. still quite early in it. For me, that's like peak adventure. Yeah. Like you are going out into space purely because you want to know what's there. Mm-hmm. Adventure. You find a bunch of crazy stuff and then you have to sort of make decisions about that. Mm-hmm. But that is a pure adventure. Um, Fallout New Vegas, not necessarily some of the other fallouts, but Fallout New Vegas is an mm. adventure. You could argue this violates my method because the thing that starts that is that you get shot in the head and left for dead. Mm. But like you wake up, you could just recover and go about your life. But instead, you're like, I am 100% going to track down who did this to me Mm -hmm. and wreck them. And in that one specifically, there's such a a sense of like propulsion coming from the character that you're playing. Mm that it feel it has that feeling of like no I'm I'm absolutely going through going forward with this, but the one that for me is sort of like the the pinnacle is Final Fantasy IX. That's what I, I was waiting for you to mention. Yeah, kind of a JRPG here. Final Fantasy IX is the for me the ultimate. Pretty much every character for me um, has the same experience of a call to adventure. Everyone is choosing to be there because they want to see whatever they're doing through. There absolutely are all these twists and turns of people and new places. You absolutely are on that journey, constantly learning new things, like fascinating discovery, great story top to bottom, lots of, I mean, lots of personality in all of the characters, really well articulated in a world that you come to really care about and that makes sense as a whole, like not Mm -hmm. disjointed in the way that like, yeah, I don't know. Just not di- not disjointed. Um, still with a, a good bit of coherence. That for me is like, mwah. I also, I don't know if there's something that it's easier for me to apply the word adventure to things that skew towards the fantasy side mm-hmm. as opposed to the sci-fi or like, hmm. hor- like really horrorish or any of that. Like for me, it's something really that kind of. I think it's, I mean. Sci-fi does this a lot too, and Utter Wilds is kind of a perfect example of this. But fantasy is so kind of beholden to hero's journey, yeah, yeah, narrative, yeah, yeah. which it like it's has a lot of overuse, but it's but it's it works, yeah. right? And especially the feeling, kind of the the scope and scale widening of this world that seems so small when you begin, and that mm-hmm. you just see it kind of expand in scale as you go, and. The, these games, I, uh, like Final Fantasy IX is one of them. I mean, most Final Fantasies do yeah. this, where by the time you get to the end, you reflect back on where you began, and it it feels like you've seen so much. Yeah. And being able to communicate that through kind of through the game and through the pacing of the game, I think that creates a sense of adventure, and it is kind of the small just kind of opening up into the mm-hmm. big. It's sometimes harder in science fiction if you're already establishing that you've got kind of the universe. Yeah, like in sci-fi, often you want to describe the world first Mm -hmm. and then focus on the particularity of the person in the world. And I almost feel like adventure fantasy Mm -hmm. goes the opposite way. Like it starts with like me in my village, like sometimes literally like waking up in my bed in my room and we're going to go out, out, out. And that's what Outer Wilds uses that structure within kind of science fiction. Yeah. Where you wake up by a campfire in your small village. Yeah. And you're going to your first exploration and the world just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you go. And stranger and stranger. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's part of it for me. Progression as well like as a character so that mm-hmm. you also feel like you are growing to match mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. expanding world as you go. And so those have to be scaled kind of equally. Right. A big one, I think, for me is that it has to have a sense of mystery, both 
in terms of the narrative, but also in terms of the exploration. Like the best adventure games have places that are have secrets. Right, right. Or have certain things that, right, villages that aren't mandatory or towns that aren't mandatory or, right. or plot threads that aren't mandatory. Right. Um, it has to at least give me a sense that I stumbled upon something that maybe I wasn't intended to. Right. Even though obviously they I was put intended it in the to. Game, but yeah. You didn't have to. Right. But it needs to kind of trick me at least for a few seconds into thinking that maybe maybe I've encountered something that I wasn't that I wasn't supposed to see. Right. Right. Um, and that's that's really important. And a lot of a lot of especially the older Final Fantasies did that. It says a lot about I think a designer too because it it's it takes so much time and money and effort to make every little thing in your game. Mm-hmm. And if you have kind of the ability to put stuff in that you don't care if people don't see, right? Uh, there's something so special about those places. And I wonder if that's even more so like before the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so hard to do secrets really mm-hmm. now. But yeah, certainly, you know, back in the day when it was dependent on like seeing it in a magazine or you find it genuinely as a fluke or like your friend shows you like that's mm-hmm. a different sort of thing than mm-hmm. like, oh, I looked in the game fact and it's right. <laughs> Go to Daguerre to synth the best stuff. Yeah. And I and and I think the one thing, especially in games, that kills adventure for me, and you you didn't really play game you so you came up in games or like return to games at the point when I think this was at its apex and it's still there. If you have waypoint arrows, oh it kills it for me. A hundred percent of the time. You're it's no longer an adventure. It's I'm following your stupid little arrow. <laughs> I'm walking the dotted line that you yeah. left out for me. And it kills it every time. So for like me. you want to have to go talk to the villagers to find out where the thing you're looking for has been coming from and get instructions that are like, oh, you have to go past the mountain to the north, like turn east through the forest and then you'll come upon a pond or whatever. Yeah. Like, and I'm and I'm all for quality of life things like for example quest logs that okay. write that down for me yeah. or so I can refer to it right but the second you put your stupid arrow or your quest marker that I can <laughs> just follow or tell me the exact distance between me and the thing oh okay it kills it so for you does that include like cases where you have a real like overworld map does that include like putting the dot on there if it doesn't show you anything about how to get there i'm so putting the dot, I much I much prefer that. Okay. Um, Breath of the Wild does this thing where you can put it where you can put the dots where you want. I've always wanted that to be able to mark the you put mark your it on the markers map, on the map, and and you can kind of see in the distance like a highlighted color that shows where that map okay. marker is. But you still have to kind of do that work, and okay. so it is simulating the experience of you know like finding out where it is on the map and then tracking. Right. And it's making that easy. And so I I don't oppose those kind of quality of life things. I don't I know there are a lot of games where you can kind of literally read a compass and you have to have those skills to progress. Mm-hmm. I don't need that. If it's just a matter of somebody gives me a quest and the next thing I know it's on the map and it directs me exactly how to get there. Mm-hmm. It it breaks it. It's it's that's not an adventure. I, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. So there so there are a lot of games, I think, recently that I've played that think they're adventures <laughs> or think they have kind of adventure Say elements. the names. I mean, you know what? So Horizon, sure. you mentioned one. I, I mean, that wouldn't fit even your yeah, definition no, of doesn't. adventure because of what motivates the plot. And I think that's also part of it. Yeah. But that world just felt, that world felt already mapped out for me. Mm. Like I felt like there was no discovery hmm. um, in that game. Okay. So I've brought this up before, but this this is exactly kind of the the thing that crystallizes things that kill the sense of adventure. 
in Horizon, when I got to the this new area where you're going to see one of those weird like giraffe things. Yeah, tall neck. Sure, a tall neck, <laughs> which are very cool. And yeah. I actually didn't know we're in the game because I didn't see it in any I didn't of the either. promo yeah. stuff. But an icon on the map appeared of that. Oh, right. It looks like a tall and neck. And it looks like it. Yeah. Exactly like it. Yeah. And then I go there and then it appears. It just kills it for me. Okay. So rather than feeling the awe of seeing this incredible machine for the first time, you're just like, yeah, I knew it would look like that. That's what the icon was. Yeah. And so there was, there was again, like this, I'm just in this world that is already mapped out for me. There's mm-hmm. nothing to explore. It's been explored. It's mm-hmm. been marked for me. And I'm just kind of going bumbling the through thing. it. Right. And so that's a thing that for me, Zelda's, okay, so maybe Skyward Sword did a little bit of handholding. Mm-hmm. That also was kind of that was kind of as you were getting back into games, so it really it kind of did fall into this over tutorialization. But by and large, they have maintained a sense of adventure, and you feel like you're exploring, um, kind of on your own. And, and at least for me, the the games have always had that, and they're kind of one of the few franchises that continue to have that. You know, it's kind of interesting to hear you say that the era of over tutorialization was right as I was coming up because. I wonder if that's part of what made it possible for me to get back into games. And I, I yeah, and it, like in a, yeah. I mean, not that that means we have to mm-hmm. like that as a really good element of design, but like in terms of being more welcoming to beginners mm-hmm. who like maybe would really like to try this, but maybe like just are not going to be able to mm-hmm. figure out a, a Stone Cold Zelda like right yeah. out the gate. I, I wonder if like my, my progress back into this community would have been different in different oh, eras. I, I mean, that's probably true. And and one of the reasons that a lot of these kind of changes were implemented, there was all this tutorialization was because they needed to attract a broader market. And so I think it did work. Okay. There's always going to be a line. Uh, sure. But sure. it's also why um, when Dark Souls came out, it was so refreshing for so many people because right. that just... They don't of, tell you shit. In it, that yeah. It like spit on <laughs> tutorialization. And and again, that that has... That has an almost Zelda-like sense of adventure for me. Okay, cool. And so maybe uh, when you get there, we can we can kind of compare notes. Okay, cool. Yeah. So any any other thoughts on on adventure? What you're expecting from Zelda in terms of an adventure? I really so have no idea what mm-hmm. to expect. You touched on this before, and the, the other thing for me that adventures need, and that might be partly be because of my history with Zelda, and also my history with of the adventure game genre, the point and click genre, which mm-hmm. I know you've also played a bunch of mm-hmm. um, a bit later, um, is some kind of puzzle solving. Yep, right. It has to be, it can't just be completely combat oriented. There has to be some kind of problem solving, puzzle solving. Not nece- It doesn't necessarily have to have kind of these obtuse. Like really puzzle puzzles. Like a pinnacle point and click adventure game puzzles. <laughs> like get out a pen and paper and like write down the... But there is, yeah, there has to be something that is um, that is a puzzle, if not if not a problem that requires some kind of lateral thinking, okay, to to solve, okay. And I think that also that also makes me feel like I'm I'm on an adventure because I'm I'm figuring things out, sure, on sure, my sure, own, sure. and that is me. That's not kind of the avatar that is much stronger than me and is right. winning the battles. This is like, like is me figuring source? this out. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, same with the exploration. That's kind of me as a player figuring that out. Cool, and that and that feels good. Cool, that makes sense. Yeah, and so hopefully, so that's the sense of, that's kind of how I feel playing Zelda. So hopefully you get a little bit of that um, with this one, even though it is kind of a, a, an older game. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it.
Okay, we're back, and now we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Link's Awakening. And as we mentioned, we will be playing the 2019 Switch release, but the bare bones of that game really are in the 1993 Game Boy version. And so just to give you a little bit of of context, so the Game Boy was released in 1989. I know you have some history with the Game Boy. Yep, I had one. (laughs) Is that it? Well, and several games to go with it, yeah. No, I I'm not sure I'm not sure how old I was when I got it. I doubt it was like the first year it was out, but I mean I played a lot of Tetris. I played the first two levels of Kid Icarus because I could <laughs> never get past the first boss, the Minotaur. Um, I mean I played I think Donkey Kong Land two, the one with Dixie, Super Mario Land. Like I I oh uh, Pokemon Red or Blue I don't remember okay, which so when quite, it came out quite a bit later so yeah. I, I played it for a long time like I I remember having that for years and years and years and years like in my head there's a long time distance between when I was playing Super Mario Land and when I was playing Pokemon Red or Blue mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true but I mean it is quite a long time especially when you're that young and mm-hmm. years feel yeah like so, four years yeah. is forever yeah. yeah. As with most handhelds, but maybe even especially with the Game Boy, it always have had to be compared to home consoles mm-hmm. and was often always seen as a lesser, except it brought portable Tetris, which is kind of the best, the best thing Thank you. that has ever happened. Thank you, Nintendo. Um, and Nintendo been, had been trying to boost the Game Boy with games that seemed to be the equivalent of their console games, sometimes failing, sometimes not. Um so you'd have right, the Super Mario Land series. Super Mario Land 1, like the first one, Super Mario Land, it, it's not it's not quite as robust in terms of kind of I do remember that, yeah. Graphically as yep. even the NES. You know what I remember from that? Being in a little sub that could shoot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shooting a seahorse thing. Right, so adding weird shooting mechanics yeah, to a like, Mario what? game is strange. Right. It had its own personality. Right. And then Super Mario Land 2, Six Golden Coins, which I don't think you I don't think play. I had that one. That's actually quite amazing and that's oh, cool. where wario was introduced so okay. he's kind of a game boy character first honestly makes sense <laughs> um as we talked about when we were doing super metroid the metroid sequel metroid 2 was a game boy game the it was called final fantasy adventure it came out in 1991 but it was really the first game in what would become the mana series mm. was on game boy had some kirby games on game boy so you do have these games and like i said kid icarus had a game boy version so you do have these big franchises appearing on game boy but by and large, they're not necessarily taken as seriously. Um, again, there are some outliers. The ones we mentioned often are the outliers. Mm-hmm. Those are games that people did enjoy. But Link's Awakening especially was this moment when it kind of blew people's minds that a, a Zelda game was coming to the Game Boy and that did not seem dumbed down and actually seemed to be on par with, if not better than, the Super Nintendo game. And and there wasn't an equivalent being offered on Super Nintendo. Is that correct? Well, there was Link to the Past on Super Nintendo. No, no, no. Yes, I, I remember that. But it's not like when they made like Donkey Kong Country and oh, Donkey right. Kong Land. Like yeah. it's not one of those. No, it was it was very much if you want to play what is pretty much the sequel to Link to you the Past, you, have, Game Boy. you have to play it on Game Boy. Okay, gotcha. And the experience is actually not that different. Cool. And so when the, when the game was first revealed, there was a sneak peek in Nintendo Power in January of 1993 in that issue. But at this time, it's just referred to as Zelda 4. But you can even see in the numbering then that it was communicating that it is kind of a mainline title. Right. Um, and it was also a screenshot that showed off the graphics that you could see were not Super Nintendo quality, but they did look great. Mm-hmm. So it appeared after that at CES as Link, Link's Awakening with the title. And then it was released in North America in August 1993. 
And the development of the game was was kind of interesting, too. Um, and that did kind of lead to its quirky character that did carry forward. And so it actually began um, with a bunch of developers and programmers of Link to the Past just tinkering after hours with a Game Boy dev kit. Um, and so it became, they, they called it kind of their after school club, their after hours <laughs> club, where they just play away, play around to see if they could even approximate Zelda on the Game Boy. And it turned out that with some effort, they could. But again, because it was just them playing around after hours, the thing they were prototyping ended up being pretty improvisational. Sure. It was kind of playful and silly. And that is what eventually evolved into Link's Awakening. Initially, the director of Link to the Past, Takashi Tezuka, who was also the director of Link's Awakening, thought that they could just make a Game Boy port of Link to the Past. But then as people were kind of experimenting with ideas, they decided to do something completely different, make their own game. He even in an interview later described it as like a parody of a Zelda game because Mm -hmm. it is so much more playful. And I think it really does define the spirit of what Zelda became, hmm. uh, which is which is uh, uh, why I think this game is maybe more important for you to play than Link to the Past at this point as sure. your as your entry point. It began, and maybe this is an image you have have seen. The scenario writer Kensuke Tanabe had this image in his head. He had it, and he wanted to use it in Link to the Past, and couldn't of a giant egg on top of a mountain. <laughs> nope, that's new to me. That's new to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I mean, you'll you'll see it. Listen, if you look I'm on, telling you, I know you nothing look, about this If you look on the one. case of the Switch version, I haven't. okay, it's on there. Um, so yeah, egg on a mountain is kind of the the driving okay, image. That's where we're starting. And then driving um, motivation for the characters was Twin Peaks, where Tezuka Whoa. said they were told that they want characters kind of inspired by Twin Peaks. So uh, a quote, suspicious cast of characters who you're never really sure what their motivation is. Whoa, this and, is very surprising to me. Yeah. And so that and they wanted um, kind of to have because because it was on the Game Boy, it couldn't be necessarily as expansive as the Super Nintendo, but they want to kind of create a fully realized world from a kind of smaller space. Hmm. So a village, but that's full of life, full of weird characters who you, you want to learn more about. And so uh, that's that's kind of what this game is, and people it really did resonate with people when it when it came out. And the big theme in a lot of the previews and the reviews was the fact that this was a legitimate Zelda game on the Game Boy. Like, can you believe it? In that, can tone? you believe okay. it? And not only that, but it's it's kind of as expansive, in some ways, more interesting than the Super Nintendo version. And one thing that came out a lot was that people said it was much much harder. Hmm. I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. Hmm. Yeah, I probably have to play them back to back maybe to to see, or at least right, they played them kind of a year apart, so I guess they'd have a better reference point. But um, one of the interesting things is the GamePro review of, of Link to the Past um, called it, quote, a wake-up call for gamers about to drowse off behind the controls of their portable. Whoa. And they said, the Game Boy might be depicted as a toilet bowl by television commercials, but this cart makes other systems look like latrines. And is so, that a reference to something specific? Yeah, and I showed you. I think I think I showed you that earlier. So the the Game Gear, the Sega Game Gear, had oh, come out yeah. at this point and was having a really aggressive advertising campaign that was openly mocking the Game Boy for being monochrome, like steam spinach or something like that. Yeah, like that green, making fun of kind of the greenish color because it was fully colored portable. Okay, and did say right that if you're the the one that the commercial they're referring to. It has this dog and says, well, if you're colorblind with the IQ of with like an oh, IQ of right. 12, then maybe you'd want the Game Boy. Right. But if you're like a smart person, uh. then you want the Game Gear. And it ends by saying. Real gamer discourse starts here. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then it ends by saying, oh, but if you choose the Game Boy, like you're the kind of thing that drinks out of the toilet bowl. 
Like oh, the dog. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember that. Uh, clearly a sick burn that really landed. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it does, it, it makes its way into this review. Sure. And then the review is making the case that actually, like, the the games are are stronger. At least this game is stronger than anything on the on the Game Gear at that, at that point. Hmm. And there's a very similar tone in the review from Electronic Games. Here the reviewer says, quote, I'm not a fan of the Game Boy, nor are very many specific Game Boy games. The screen is small, colorless, and hard of my already overstrained eyes. <laughs> While I can certainly recognize quality in a Game Boy game, it takes an extra effort for one of these games to draw me in so deeply that I'm willing to sit down hour upon hour, squinting at the tiny green screen to play a game all the way through. Mm. Link's Awakening, the latest Legend of Zelda game from Nintendo, is exactly that sort of game. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask you about. Like, what it, what is it like to play an adventure game that's like trying to be really expansive on a Game Boy screen, which like those things are small, right? Yeah. And I, I might have to go back and revisit it, but I do remember and the screenshots kind of um, reinforces that the sprites were big enough that it, it didn't look tiny on the screen. And so hmm. that was one of the things like Super Mario Land, for example, those sprites oh, were so tiny. tiny, so tiny. And they kind of fixed that for um, Super Mario Land 2, which you kind of got nice, big, bulky sprites. And same with um, same with Zelda. Like, I don't remember anything being difficult to see or make out. Like everything was very clear. Like the aesthetic was very clear and the sprites were all really nice. That is impressive, honestly. So yeah, the look was the look was there, and it didn't look so much different from if it's Super Nintendo counterpart counterpart. But the other thing that you bring up is how long these games are. the The thing that the Game Boy really had an advantage over the Game Gear was in terms of battery life, because mm. the Game Gear would just suck batteries dry because it was it was just it it took so much power. And whereas you could actually get through, for example, Zelda on your Game Boy on one set of batteries. Okay. And partially as a way to prove this, Nintendo came up with this weird promotional campaign or way to engage journalists. Okay. Where they gathered a bunch of games journalists and gamers and stuck them on a train that was going um, from New York to Seattle and asked them to race to see who could finish Link's Awakening the fastest. (laughs) And so they were given a Game Boy, they're given Link's Awakening, and they started in New York and they said, okay, just play and whoever wins will donate money to your charity okay of your choice and uh so part of that was again to get people excited about the game to actually get them to sit down and play the game and finish it in a relatively short amount of time so they could then write about it although is that a great way to get people to play (laughs) your game like for review like imagine playing something you have to review and also being like i have to get this as fast as possible to beat all these other idiots i mean that's I think what games journalism is. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it <laughs> like, is. When you it's have to like, meet embargo, like you have to meet your deadlines. Yeah, that's like fair. That's fair. Uh, Not I a lot of time to look around and smell the flowers, eh? Yeah, I think they're I think they're trying to get to them pretty quickly. Yeah, um, you're right. But again, it was also a testament to the battery life of these things. Okay. That you could actually play the game on this on this journey, which is, I think, how a lot of people would have experienced um, Link's Awakening. I mean, I played probably half of it in a car. Yeah. Oh, Game Boy was my... I played it... Probably 90% of the total time I spent with a Game Boy in my hands was on car trips. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's important that it's a game that can kind of keep your attention and um, be on a system that you don't need to swap out six batteries every two hours. Right. And it was, as we talked about with Super Metroid, remember Super Metroid was kind of the biggest cart of the time in 1994. This was hailed as the biggest Game Boy cart at four megabits. (laughs) Um, 
six golden coins to Mario Land 2 is the same size, but those are kind of the two biggest carts. And and again, like the rhetoric was, this is the most um, complex Game Boy game to date. It's the biggest Game Boy game to date. And a lot of people still think that it is the greatest Game Boy game kind of ever made. Cool. So maybe before we move on and uh, and continue talking, I do want to show you a few of the ads. They're not going to give too much away, but I just kind of can't resist. I have three TV spots to show you and um, and some art. I have to say I'm very I was thinking about what I have been learning about TV and magazine ads <laughs> in the 90s for games. And I'm very curious how we're going to reconcile this with what I now know about Tone in this game. We should do a whole kind of 90s advertising episode I, in the future. I can't. But for now, let's take a <laughs> let's take a short break and I'll show you these ads. Okay, great. Michelle's still uh, reeling a bit from from watching some TV ads. Yeah. But just so we're all on the same page. And again, we're going to post all these in the show notes in case you want to watch along. Uh, we watched three television commercials. We watched the... Down with Zelda. <laughs> North American English ad. We watched one French-Canadian ad. And then we watched the, the Japanese ad, all from the 1993, the original release. Boy, are they different. <laughs> Yeah, they all have, they are kind of completely tonally yeah. distinct. Yeah. So maybe you could walk us walk us through them. Okay. Um, maybe in order of uh, least favorite to favorite. Okay. <laughs> so definitely the general North American one is my least favorite. We have a rap artist um, in the middle of a weird room with like clips of Link's Awakening being play, like projected onto walls. And he's doing a rap for us about how he's down with Zelda. I should have clarified that earlier. He's not saying down with Zelda, Zelda is bad. He's saying, <laughs> I have to go on this. I'm I'm down with Zelda. So for me, I I didn't it didn't communicate with me about the game. Uh, I understood this man's excitement, but it didn't uh, transfer any of that excitement to me. Kind of explain the game, like he talked about the top down perspective. Yeah. Yeah, it, he did. It not in. The, it was hard to focus on the words. <laughs> and did you focus on the visuals? Did you notice any of the visuals that that appealed to you? Said I can't wait until I'm at that. They see that thing. So if I had been watching Saturday morning cartoons and saw this thing twenty five times over a <laughs> one hour period, I'm sure I would have. Um, I retained nothing from that ad <laughs> okay. except like why i had only <laughs> questions at the end um which like at, at, i guess it's like not that fun to dunk on ads from 1992 but like i just what what was the plan they did not know how to sell this game this is the <laughs> conclusion that i'm truly left with the french canadian ad which like great pull by the way is this one that you would have seen when you were no okay i'm yeah no i didn't really watch french television okay um not a stupid question. Um, it, it's a guy on a bus who's talking about how, like, ooh, I've been, there's a new Zelda game out. I've been fighting enemies with pointy what's the, spears. What's the, what's the name of the new Zelda game? Link's Awakening. Uh, they, they didn't translate it into French. So he, all he, he's talking in French, but then just 
Ah, it's a awakening. Um, great, uh, great impression of French. Listen, that's offensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't speak it. Uh, so, yeah, he's talking about like I met guys with spears and bottomless pits. Look out for that bat! It's very weird. And then at the end, it shows him like on the bus with this Game Boy, and he's like something like, and it's so hard on the thumbs, and like. Legend of Zelda. Like yeah, right. This one's really pushing the the kind of the difficulty, the challenge aspect yeah. of it. If you if you remember the old uh, Metroid dog ad. Yeah, but it's not it's not that vibe exactly because it also is like telling you about crazy stuff he's, hap- he's mm-hmm. experiencing in it, and it's like overlaid over um, like shots of those things happening in the game. Like I feel like I saw more of mm-hmm. the game in this ad, although I'm sure for screen time that's actually not mm-hmm. true. I, I feel like I, this one, I'm like, oh, I know some of the things that are in this game. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to just. But you don't know if he's down with Zelda. Uh, no, it remains to be seen. Uh, he was just trying to make it out of there alive. So that was a French Canadian one. And then my favorite for sure was the Japanese one, which had these like um, practical effects puppets that like were very clearly like they had the sticks attached from the bottom like not trying to hide the fact they're puppets of like i assume zelda and link and like an owl and some other things and it's sort of i mean it's in japanese so we don't know exactly what the words were but it's like really bright colors and like kind of cartoony and it shows like him getting shipwrecked and washing up on this island and this woman who i assume is zelda finding him and oh you're smiling okay it's probably not zelda um, and like doing stuff on the island and swatting away bad guys. And it's just, it's like very quirky and charming and has this like kind of chaotic, but still legible energy. I think like, but the other one, so the, the, the North America, the English one was in kind of this dark, yeah, almost castle like environment. Yeah. The other one was the French one was it was I mean it was on a bus, but he was talking about how he was in castles and yeah. there were bats and there was enemies and with spears and bottomless pits. Whereas this one, the tone, it was you were on a colorful a tropical island. Tropical island. You it saw, shows you a hibiscus flower yeah. and some coconut. Like it's You see the mountain with the egg? Yep. Yep. You see all that stuff. So yeah, this one which I now understand this is more what the game is actually meant to look like. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me both from the Japanese television ad and also from some of the like um the manual and some of the promotional art that oh, yeah, you so showed me. I also me. showed her just some of the art that's in the manual. I showed her the some of the art that's in Nintendo Power and especially so I showed her the cover of the um 50th issue of Nintendo Power which mm-hmm. had Link's Awakening on the cover. It was a Sword and an Owl. Sword and an Owl. And then some of the art inside that had uh, kind of the more cartoony style that went along with uh, an article and um, kind of a player, a mini player's guide for the game. Yeah. And again, we'll link all that in show notes. But the thing that stood out to me is they really go out of their way in a lot of this to show it in this really like vibrant, colorful, like tropical sort of feeling. And it's almost like I feel like they're trying to plant those images in your head in advance so that when you see them in this like black and white sort of sprite format that the the Game Boy offers, you're sort of prepped to fill in some of that. Like I say color, but I don't just mm-hmm. mean visually. I mean right. like flavor and space and, mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Um, 
And I think that's also why I like the Japanese one better than like the American one is like a guy in a dark thing rapping about Zelda and then just shots of the game, which like that is okay. But I don't know. This one I feel like Mm -hmm. prepares me for something a little more. Yeah. He's like in a dark spooky castle or something. Or like an abstract like music video Mm -hmm. space with like weird blocks and like a weird lighting. Like it's just it's just sort of it's pretty abstract. Mm -hmm. But when you see especially that Japanese ad. I think right the the style of the Switch remake makes so much more sense. Yeah, it looks a lot like the cover art of the remake. <laughs> remake. Yeah. It's like, almost like they how... went back to that commercial, or mm-hmm. that commercial, like you said, is really trying to communicate what they want you to imagine in your head as you play. Yeah. But it is right so much more playful mm-hmm. than the yeah, other it, ones. It's goofy. The puppets are kind of flopping around mm-hmm. in like a like a Muppety sort of cartoonish way. Like it's yeah, it's not the oh, I'm meeting guys with pitchforks mm-hmm. and like bottomless pits and blah blah blah. Yeah, it has it has much more of a vibe. I and that one makes you more excited to to play the game. Yeah, the Japanese one. Yeah, don't yeah. tell me about guys. With, I know there's going to be guys with spears. It's fine. <laughs> there's always guys with spears. Like I wanted, I want to know what's special about this one. Now, before we release you into the world of the island and the bats and the guys with spears. We should probably deal with the elephant in the room, which is that you're not actually playing the original version of Link's Awakening. And so to to be fair, we were planning on doing Link's Awakening originally this whole time. It's always been one of the games that's kind of been on your list. It was one of the first ones I think that we decided we should play when we started talking about this podcast. And also to be fair, originally... Um, we were also going to probably play a remake, the the 1998 uh, Game Boy Color remake. Wait, really? Yeah. That, I don't think I realized that until, <laughs> until now. Yeah, the version, the version that we have is the, is Link's Awakening DX, the 1998 colorized version that uh, came out with, or shortly after the Game Boy Color. Oh, so I wouldn't have had like all the... The black and white original Game Boy art or that the was green like and green. <laughs> the multiple like cream spinach. spinach. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have had that anyway. The stuff that was in those commercials. No, yours would have been yours would have been in color. Okay, okay. So we were kind of cheating anyway, but then as we were kind of preparing, we saw the the announcement of this game. We saw the the trailer, or at least I did. I can't. Remember yeah, no, I remember this because I think it was in. It might have been E3 or it might have been another. Um, it was a Nintendo Direct. Okay, it was just a Nintendo Direct. Um, but I remember you figuring out what the trailer was for and being like, close your eyes, pull your ears. <laughs> like immediately you just, yeah. and I obediently just like slammed <laughs> my senses shut like a vault, like just <laughs> shut everything in. And I actually still have not seen a second of any trailer I think you've for seen this game. some of the art style and um, that's kind of it yeah i mean it was hard to avoid some still images mm-hmm. just from being a person on the internet who follows this stuff but i still haven't watched any of the any of the trailers or anything i've really 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 tried hard to be on blackout about this but we did have a discussion about which version she'd play and i think this kind of brings us into into a, a larger discussion Especially when we're talking about classic games, when the the purpose of this show is for Michelle to go kind of back and play classics that she missed. 
the big question of is it legitimate to play a remaster of a game? Does it quote unquote count as you playing the original game? <laughs> wow, the the like the language of like does it count is Does it count? It's like I, triggering for me is an overstatement because that's specific language, but like I that brings up my defensive reflexive hatred of any argument that sounds like purism because right. I just that's so stupid and so gatekeeperish and like what like really do I have to go back and play the early do I have to find a cartridge from 1993 in a used game store it doesn't count like it it's that like um oh everything sounds better on vinyl like <laughs> argument that like okay I mean I don't even know if if I'm thinking about it that extreme I'm just thinking about it in terms of then when you said that you played Link's Awakening, would it always be, I played Link's Awakening, the 2019 Switch edition, right. which is fundamentally distinct from the 1993 edition. Right. Like I would have to say, edition. like I've played Link's Awakening with like an asterisk. Like there's a footnote yeah. forever <laughs> attached to it. Like, well, kind of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's a fair question, especially uh, understanding now that we weren't ever talking about the black and white version. Like that's. Mm-hmm. That's more of a... Or about you playing that version. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 exactly. And I think what what kind of sealed the kind of the sealed the deal for us was when we found out that this um, this version, the 2019 version, much like the 1998 version, was almost going to be a, almost a screen by screen update. Yeah. Where we, fundamentally the gameplay wouldn't change, the dungeon design wouldn't change, the script would, wouldn't change that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we spent a fair bit of time talking about like what kind of changes would it be okay for us to tolerate in this sense and what would be too much. And also uh, watching the press coverage really closely to try to get a sense before making this decision about is this sort of just, and I'm sort of like doing air quotes around the word just, an art style or graphical update, or is this actually a reimagining or a deeper kind of like remake? Yeah, so I guess that's one question I have for you uh, as we get into this bigger issue of of whether right, whether it's fair to call the remake and the original the same, or whether it, or whether it, to go back to that language that you hate, whether it counts. <laughs> I don't um, like it <laughs> <laughs> because in in terms of say HD remakes or remasters mm-hmm. or ones that are primarily graphical overhauls, do you mm-hmm. just see that art style? Or the graphical change as almost just a, a superficial mm. veneer that doesn't change the fundamental of the game? That's interesting. Um, I think like within a certain range, you can call that just cosmetic, right? Like I think about how when we played Resident Evil together, I think we played the the remake, right? Yeah, which had quite a bit of, okay. there were quite a bit of changes, but it was definitely a, a huge graphical improvement. Okay. For sure, yeah. Because I think I have... I think I've seen the original non-remake mm-hmm. version. And that's an instance where everything, and I mean, I'm looking at this with 2019 eyes as well. Like I want to acknowledge, like maybe if I had played it, played the remake in its time where it was like, wow, look at how detailed and and everything this is. Maybe it would feel different. But to me, those, they look like the same zombie design. They look mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. same design of the house like that's the same house yeah the added so the 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 gamecube version which we played kind of a a, a remaster of the gamecube remake oh god yeah we're never gonna untangle <laughs> this <laughs> so i still haven't played resident evil one i guess 
in conclusion. <laughs> um, yes, we played that one together and it it has some new areas and there's some new plot stuff. But maybe one of the things that that you're kind of bringing up, especially when we're talking about just graphical overhauls, um, is if the graphical overhaul brings to you the experience in terms of the horror, for example, or the tension that somebody might have had playing the original, mm-hmm. but you can't have because you're so distanced from mm-hmm. that kind of graphical style it's just now. polygons. Yeah. Yeah. And it just kind of looks so ugly and, and phony to you. Whereas at the time, I think it really did resonate with people. I did find it actually scary. Right. Like I never played it originally because I was too scared of it. <laughs> right. I mean, also you were we. Not that <laughs> we. <laughs> Just a big baby. Okay, well. <laughs> and and we maybe we want to think about Link's Awakening in those terms, where the updating of the graphical style is bringing a, a kind of sense of wonder again that you wouldn't have if you went back to the old Game Boy sprites. Um, right. Or even although, the colorized version, but maybe it's about... Although I don't... That gives me pause because, you know, we... There's lots of games from the early 90s, even like thinking about something like Super Metroid, where like I love the sprite work in that. That Super Metroid gave me vibes. It gave me mood. It gave me memorable environments and character work with the constraints of the time. So I'm, I'm, this is actually making me think like, I I wouldn't want to let this game off the hook if mm. it couldn't express any of that to me in the okay. like black and white Game Boy mm-hmm. format, right? Um, I mean, of course, it's going to read more easily to me in like the 2019 version, which is much more like the sorts of things that I'm my eyes are used to looking at now. But I don't know about that. I mean, I think I think what matters, I, I think it connects to like, what is what is this art style for? What's it hmm. trying to accomplish and make me think um, about this world and about the things that I'm doing? And is that preserved? Hmm. Um, and this is sort but of. Do you think so? If it's pres- so, but that's almost a, a right a theoretical understanding of right. what kind of preserved means. Right. It's very abstract. Right. So, is it if you have kind of the if you, and again, how can you even capture the experience you would have had had you played right. in nineteen ninety three? It's that's so hypothetical. Nothing. Yeah. So where do you draw the line, or do you just not draw the line when it comes to art style? At what point then is does a new art style, let's say everything else is exactly the same mm-hmm. and just the art style has changed, mm-hmm. in what sense do you think then we have to call that a completely brand new game that is completely separate from the original, at least when you're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. I played X game? Yeah. Um, or do you not in terms of art? Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about this. I think I I really don't want to separate the art out so much from the other parts of mm-hmm. what a game is. Like, I think that... I think we can't talk about it as a purely superficial thing, but at the same time, it does feel different to me to say, like, yeah, they replaced these little sprites with like a 3D looking-ish update of that that reflects more the concept art or like what we saw in the Japanese ad and in that way is like trying to show you the thing that maybe designers always had in their heads, right? Um, But I can imagine, like, I can imagine updates where there are stylistic changes as well where um where that makes a difference or where you know I'm I'm thinking actually about um the series of letters that you and I read a while ago about Final Fantasy 7 um that I forget if they were in Polygon it was a guy who was playing Final Fantasy 7 for the first time and he was talking about how 
the sort of blank space left by some of the pretty crude, um, like polygonal figures mm-hmm. in that, especially against the backgrounds that seem much more alive, actually leave room for projection and space for mm-hmm. to imagine characters that aren't chained to like the limitations of facial animations at the time. And that really makes a lot of sense to me. So I can imagine, I mean, we would never play Final Fantasy VII Remake that's underway right now and call that a substitute for original no. Final Fantasy VII, but that's, right? That's much, right? That's much more than just a graphical right. overhaul. That's a That seems to be a complete redesign in every way with right. the same characters and maybe not, I mean, I assume the same thread, plot mm-hmm, threads mm-hmm. And, and major story beats, Themes but and, even, even then, yeah. it's still unclear what's been added, what's been changed, especially if they're taking kind of the first few hours of that game and extending it to a 60-hour thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think like um, related to this is I don't feel really all that clear. If we're talking about mostly an art and aesthetic change, when we want to call something a remake versus a, like a remaster, like what uh, – is this like a super – HD remaster of the Game Boy I, Color. I like, don't well, think it, it is. I mean, that people, seems wild, right? Yeah, like, these is... terms. So reboot is one of the is one of the three R's. That's kind of we can we know when it's a reboot. Yeah, that's a series that has been dead or yeah or that gets a complete substantially revamp. reinvented in yeah yeah and nobody's confusing the new Hitman. Right, 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 right. The 2018 Hitman with the the 2000 Hitman, right? right? It's clearly a reboot, even though it's not a numbered version. Right. Um, but they're separate games, right? So that's those kind of stay on their own. It gets murkier when people talk about remake, remaster, mm-hmm. and it always depends on what the labor is involved. Is it just kind of an upres of existing graphics, or in terms of the visuals, do they rebuild all the characters kind of from scratch? Right. Obviously, in the in the case of Link's Awakening. It's all new assets. Clearly, clearly, yeah. So whether so, I don't know if, if remaster is a fair enough um, word to use to describe that. Mm-hmm. Well, but yet, I wonder... when the bones are so much the same, whether we can call it a remake, it's it's it is on the line. Well, and it's it's interesting to me to think about, and I would I would be interested in hearing about this from someone with like much more technical game dev knowledge, honestly, than than mm-hmm. either of us. But like. It it would be weird, even if this was just looked much more like um, the Game Boy Color version, this game has to be being completely rebuilt on Switch, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... I mean, this you can, isn't you a can, port. You can talk about the... Right. So I guess that... I guess what I'm thinking of is the distinction between that and a port, because you might have the same basic design documents in terms of, okay, this is... These are the maps of the dungeons... This is the layout of the world. This is how the boss fights are going to work mechanically. That design work is done, but it's not like you just load up the back end of like the Game Boy Color software and just like slide one slider all the way up mm-hmm. like like you're in a in like an audio editing booth mm-hmm. and you're like now it's higher res. Release it to switch. Yeah. Like in a in a technical sense you are building oh, yeah, the whole like, thing yeah. again, right? Um, which I think is sort of um, made invisible to consumers when you just call something an right. HD remaster. It just feels like, like you think about like a remastered album or something. It's like, yeah, they just fiddled with the mix a little bit and now it sounds better. Like, I mean, the whole point of capitalism is to hide the labor. That goes into- 
I mean, yeah, no, but sincerely, <laughs> like, I, uh, yeah, I, the fact that um, I struggle to articulate clearly the difference between a port, a remaster, mm-hmm. a re- all these sorts of shades, and that it sounds like they're a little wiggly anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you just want to play the game, though. Well, yeah. Yeah, I do. And I mean, uh, honestly, I don't want to... I don't want to be too coy about the fact that like Switch has a nice big screen. It feels comfy to hold in my hands. I like the art that this, you know, I just want to play this version also. Right. Like that's not nothing in this conversation. And, okay, so here's so here's kind of a, the next step, I think, uh, in terms of so if we if we can accept at least in terms of these parameters that you are playing by and large the bones of Link's Awakening, mm-hmm. there are there are some minor differences, including a, I, for me a huge quality of life difference which is the fact that the switch has more than two buttons right right we talked about this and you will you will be playing a bit i think we agreed that you are going to be playing about the get through the first dungeon of the 1998 version yeah you said that would take like an hour hour and a half two hours something like, like not yeah, too long just yeah. so you can have a taste of what so you can kind of appreciate the changes that have been made sure and one of the things you're going to notice is that on the game boy versions when you had two buttons you had to assign all of your weapons. So you had sword and shield, but if you wanted to use something else, you have to swap out sword oh. or shield to A and B and then swap back when you want your sword back. You know what? That's actually not trivial because one of my biggest annoyances in both Super Metroid and Metal Gear Solid so far was having to rotate between weapons and equipment. Mm-hmm. Like in both of those games, I really felt like... You wanted more buttons? We did. Yeah, I wanted more buttons or for things to be configured differently or I don't know what. So... I, I do accept that that's a non-trivial upgrade that mm-hmm. I'm that we're getting in this. And I, I guess then we're getting to the bigger issue. So when you move away from just graphics or even just minor quality of life things to actually kind of fundamental changes that might change the core of the game. So mm-hmm. um, this relates to the game you played or the last game we played for this show, which is Metal Gear Solid. Mm-hmm. And there was... Because I didn't have a copy of Metal Gear Solid at the time, there was a split second when I was thinking, maybe we can just play the GameCube remake, The Twin Snakes. Mm. And I immediately said, no, that's probably not the best idea. And, and why? Well, so we, I, did, we didn't actually talk about this. We didn't. I showed you a bit of it. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, there, so so a bunch of reasons. One is that I really want you to have that, uh, that pure Hideo Kojima <laughs> experience, a, a true Hideo game. You know what? With no we- <laughs> no interference from Silicon Nitrous, this Canadian, no Canadian interference. Get him out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it's it's still unclear how much of that game he he directed. He definitely oversaw it, but there there are definitely some changes. I did show you briefly um, some of the cutscene changes where uh, Snake has these like ma- yeah. matrix like acrobatics. You know what? That would have driven me nuts specifically because. I mean, A, it's just so implausible to be doing these crazy... You basically move like the Gray Fox Ninja. Um, (laughs) But, like, there's no jump button in this game. Like, you can't have me doing, like, wild ninja flips, and then when I'm controlling the character, he can't jump over, like, (laughs) a knee-high obstacle. Like, that does not work. And then maybe the biggest thing they did is they they incorporated all the so this would so twin snakes would have come out after metal gear solid 2 okay and they incorporated all of the quality of life improvements from 2 including the ability to shoot while in first person right yeah you showed me some of the ocelot fight in yeah, first person right, and, and it was it, just like trivial yeah it just completely changes the dynamics of that fight right uh to the point where yeah you can just kind of snap to cover 
go into first person mode pew, and pew, just pew. like yeah and just like pop him in the head a few times and the the boss fight's over it all the tension is kind of gone yeah. so it's, it, it is so in that sense at least to me that twin snakes is a fundamentally different game from metal gear solid and if somebody's played the twin twin snakes i don't know you can say they've actually played the like metal gear solid right and right. so i don't know if that gets your kind of purest hackles up or no no that that kind of makes sense only be primarily because i think the the change in the cutscenes is just silly bullshit. <laughs> um, like, that's just a bad decision. And so, okay, this has helped me clarify something in my own head. So I think if with the first person, with the first person issue, um, there were plenty of places where, um, you know, I complained about how the camera works, how the, the views work. Um, I think in the last episode I talked about uh, a scene on a, a long hallway where there's guys shooting at you from just off off camera and um and you just can't see where they are and it drove me completely mm. insane oh yeah and right after you are done killing them the camera shifts and looks down the this like walkway and you can see like why why <laughs> so i think if like if the first person changes we're just fixing annoyances like that where it's like that doesn't substantially change like the meaning of that interaction or okay. like a lot that just makes something not annoying that was annoying mm. i think that i would be able to tolerate but like making a boss fight trivial like ocelot is the first time you have to learn how to use your gun mm -hmm. like you kind of just sneak and tell him at least if you're doing it right and not the way that i play <laughs> um so i think that <laughs> the like trail of dead bodies <laughs> behind you <laughs> I told you, he doesn't look like someone who's quiet. And, <laughs> um, like that, I think that's changing the formula. That's that's changing like the the guts of the game in a way, especially if you don't update other parts of that fight. Like if it was caliber, I don't know how you would fix that, but that feels like too far, if that makes mm, sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's, you're dealing with a different work of art at that point. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And which... Which doesn't like delegitimize you if that's the only version you've played. Yeah. But it's still a different version or like it's still a different piece of art than if you played the the original. Like that's where it gets too far for you. I mean. Yeah. And I think I think we just at, another thing to say is like, I don't think there's anything inherently virtuous about having played mm -hmm. the original mm -hmm. as opposed to like this one. Right. Like if in conversation someone was talking to me about Metal Gear Solid and then they mentioned, oh yeah, but the Ocelot fight's so easy and it turned out it was this. I wouldn't be like, oh, you stupid idiot. You haven't played shit. <laughs> like, I, it's just like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You played that version. Okay, got it. Yeah. So in mine, the way, like, mm -hmm. I just want there to be more that kind of okay. tone. Like, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Um, like the rule, weird rules we've set up for ourselves, notwithstanding. You know what I mean? So playing this 2019 version of Link's Awakening is not going to delegitimize your dream of becoming a gamer? It better not, because this is going to, I'm going to put <laughs> some time into this. I want this to count. I guess we'll have to talk about this in the, in the debrief, and uh, maybe you'll just be a gamer with an asterisk. <laughs> Forever. I, you know what? I'm sure I will be, and it's not because of this. <laughs> I think you're about ready to play, but as as usual, I just want to end with get a few uh, maybe predictions from you, ask you some questions, just get some thoughts so that we can p compare um, your answers um, with your actual playthrough, what you actually find. You've become really good at these, so I've tried to make these a bit <laughs> harder. 
So we'll see. So we'll start. Some of them are a bit more involved. Some of them are pretty quick. So some quick ones. Um, will you learn the difference between Ganon and Ganondorf in this game? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say no. No. Okay. What's a windfish? Uh, like a, um, like a flying fish that like jumps out of the water and like uses its like fins to like glide for a second and then goes back in. Okay. Next question. So you saw on the um on the cover of the Nintendo Power in in the Japanese ad there was that owl. He's mm-hmm. pretty prominent. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the instruction manual, it asks a question: Is he friend or foe? So I'm going to ask you that question: Is he friend or foe? Friend. I don't know if there are faux owls <laughs> in all of fiction. I don't know if there's been one. <laughs> Will there be a dark world? Doesn't there like have to be like metaphysically? Yes, there will be a dark world. At the end of the game, how many hearts will you have? There's a total of 20 in this in this one. Ooh, in this um, 14. Describe one of the bosses. Um sentient coconut okay that's uh going all in (laughs) and then last question yep will you be a thief i will yes yes i will okay we will link will and i will you'll be a thief yep okay yes that those are the questions i think you're ready to (laughs) We'll see how you do next time, but I think you're ready to start playing. Awesome. I am really excited about that. I've been like raring to get going on this one. Um, So thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, And if you're enjoying this podcast, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on your podcast app or telling a friend. I know every podcast asks you to do this, but it turns out it actually does help and people ask for a reason. Um, We will be back in two weeks time after I have finished uh, playing Link's Awakening. And if you do pick up some of those jars and there's a chicken inside, keep it to yourself. It's a ceramic pot. It's not the jars. The jars are for fairies and potions. I don't need to know. Don't <laughs> don't listen to Michelle. Just keep it to yourself. Send your emails to... <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we'll check back in next time. We'll see if this counts as a, as a real classic game <laughs> to see if Michelle is actually one step closer to becoming a gamer. God, I hope I am. <laughs> <laughs>